Museum Vestjylland, Museum West Zealand presents. Follow the Vikings. Let's conquer the world. The Viking world was huge. They're the first culture in the history of the world to have contacts on four different continents. We, despite all these uh, things that were against us with the weather and the rough nature and all that, we conquered the world, you know, against all odds. So it's just a, a warning that the Vikings could behave very badly indeed. But if you could tame them or if you could persuade them to work for you, then clearly they were extraordinary warriors. History. The Vikings traveled all over the world. England, France, North America, Russia, and even Byzantium. But how could these early Scandinavians travel so far? And why did they? That is what we will try to answer in this program. My name is Sara Sander Laugesen, and I'm a Danish historian. Today we travel from Denmark to England, and then to Byzantium. A journey my, and maybe your forefathers, took before us. Our journey begins in Denmark, on a field. We are standing on the west bank of Lake Tiso. Right now it's not very windy, so the water is very calm and it's a very beautiful place. And on this west bank we have a large Viking Age complex. Trine Borake is a PhD student from Museum West Zealand. And she's looking into the Vikings who lived in Denmark, where our journey begins. The Vikings that stayed behind were the farmers, the traders, local traders, local uh, handicraft people. They they stayed behind and, and worked here and, and made this whole society function and come alive. And that was by far the, the majority of the population. The ones that went abroad are the ones that we hear about, but they they were not a big part of the population at all. Today, the stories about Viking voyages are fascinating. But there were many Danes who at this point lived a life very much down to earth. And if you lived then, well, you might have had too. You would probably just be a, a, a normal son of a farmer. You know, we just have a position within a household. You would um, probably inherit some of the land. But then again, it was at society highly based on tribute and alliances and and you were not tied to a, a, a biological family as much as to a um, an alliance of families or households that that helped each other or had some common interests that you would uh, work towards so you would be a part of a of a local community i think today the the controversial part would be that maybe i would own slaves is that true Yeah, slaves were a big uh, part of the Viking Age society. They are quite difficult to um, track archaeologically, but we do know from the written sources that that slaves was a 
was a part of the of the Viking Age household, and and many of the great buildings and many of the great uh, shipbuilding and things like that probably could only happen because slave labor was was quite extensive, and we also know that we traded slaves to the south when the Vikings went abroad. They brought slaves in order to to use as a as a as a trading object. If you and perhaps your slaves lived near Tisu. You knew that this was an important place. It was a place for trade, a place for worship, a hub of activity. But since you need leaders to organize an expedition to cross the globe, the question at Tisu is... Who was in charge? Who demanded? Was it the local population? That, that Did they serve the local population or did they, the local population actually come in here to serve the, the magnet living here? And... Um, that's the the point of the discussion at the moment well no it's not because it's my, <laughs> my idea <laughs> so it's not discussed yet at all yet but it will but, be but it will be it will be yeah <laughs> the, yeah but yeah the, the main the main discussion is whether these magnets used the population and and had authority over the population living here or whether the local population actually demanded something of the magnet as well. So it was a, a, a give-and-take position that they had. Which side are you on? Definitely the population side. <laughs> Vikings living in Denmark didn't leave a lot of written sources for us to study to find out why they left. But what we do know is that they did, in large numbers. They traveled from Tisu, from Denmark and all of Scandinavia to destinations across the world. has surprised a lot of people with practical experimentation is the angles that these ships can sail to the wind. People assume, especially modern sailors used to supposedly technically far superior boats, oh well, a single square sail, you're not going to be able to get much speed out of that, you're not going to be able to get much of an angle to the wind, and they can. They're, They're remarkably efficient ships. Gareth Williams is a curator for the Viking collections at the British Museum and has studied how the Vikings travelled. The ships were remarkable. One of the reasons for the Vikings' success is the way these ships were built. The Viking ships were built by a method known as tinker building. And what this means is the planks on the hull of the ship overlap each other. There's very little internal framework. So that gives a, a ship that is light, it's also slightly flexible. And that means that in rough water in, in the sea, it can give with the sea rather than fighting. Um, and at the same time, you've got a ship that is light enough 
that means you can also, if you have to, pick it up and carry it. The fact that you can carry the ships is not just something to think. Gareth, for one, has actually done it. It's it's quite hard to start moving, but once you get the momentum going, it's it's pretty straightforward. So it, it's not it's not that hard to do. Whereas other types of ships in this period are so heavy that you could never think of doing it that way. That means that the Vikings could travel in rough sea, up rivers, and over land, and therefore anywhere. Navigation was of central importance when traveling, and the Vikings traveled all over the world. But were these distances intentional or coincidental? Navigation is an interesting one. We don't have a lot of surviving information about it. There's one account of how to get to Greenland, which is quite interesting. You start from a particular point on the west coast of Norway and basically sail due west. Now, that implies that they were able to tell north in order to stay at a constant distance from the north. So there, that could probably just be done from the stars. You don't need anything more sophisticated from that. Stars and sun would tell you how to do that. But it t- tells us also that you sail um, so that you pass the pharaohs so that the sea is halfway up the mountains. That's implying familiarity. It means you know already what the pharaohs look like and therefore what it would look like if you can see the whole of the mountain, half of the mountain and so on. You then pass Iceland out of sight of land but close enough that you can see whales and seabirds. So if you're in sight of land, you know that you're too far north. If you've traveled the right sort of distance and you're not seeing anything that would indicate that land is just out of sight, you know you're too far south. So they're using familiarity rather than great navigational skills that tell, tell them exactly where they are at any given moment. The choice of places that they raid early on, the famous attack on Lindisfarne, it's not just chance that they hit a very wealthy, undefended monastery in a remote place off the east coast of England. They'd been sitting up and down that coast for years before that. They knew exactly what was there and how to get there. So they're not just coming out of nowhere. They're sailing along a familiar route and making good use of that route. So, when traveling to places that were near to Scandinavia, take, for example, the attack on the Lindisfarne Monastery in England, to Scotland, the Faroes and Iceland, the Vikings knew their way. But what about one of the great journeys to North America? The account we have, or one of the two accounts we have of that first discovery, shows that it's anything but good navigation. Uh, uh, someone traveling from Iceland to Greenland who missed, he's blown off course in the storm, misses Greenland, discovers land. It doesn't sound like the descriptions he's heard of Greenland. So it's again, it's that familiarity, knowing what landmarks to look out for. Even if you haven't been there yourself, you get information from others who have. What am I looking for? I thought, this doesn't sound like Greenland. And basically they, they sail up the coast. 
it sounds from the description as if they probably found Newfoundland, then worked their way up the coast of Labrador, Baffin Island, and round to Greenland that way, and then they sail back along the coast of Greenland and find the settlement that they're looking for. So that bit is the, the clever navigation, if you like, that they're, they're able to work out that they have got it wrong and then how to how to get back in the right direction to correct the mistake. But it's not brilliant navigation. When exploring the Vikings, it would have been wonderful to interview one. The closest I can get is witnessing those who reenact the past, trying their best to dress, live and fight like the Vikings did. And just as Scandinavians in Viking times traveled across the seas to England, some of these Viking enthusiasts travel to Denmark from England today. Two of these are Alex and Benji. They didn't travel by boat, but by air. But still with a bag full of weaponry, and I couldn't help but ask them how flight attendants view those flying to Denmark carrying swords. I don't think they saw it. They didn't. No, put it in the hold. <laughs> oh my God, I think flight, flight attendants tend to look at us favourable anyway, because we, you know, we're both good, very good-looking men. So uh... that's probably it. <laughs> Would you describe how your mate looks? Uh, he's well to most people. He probably looks fairly fierce, but I know the guy, so he's like a jolly giant, really. So uh, yeah, so he's got a nice yellow tunic on, purple trousers, sealskin boots, which are pretty awesome, um, a nice war coat, um, some pendants, blonde beard, long blonde hair. Looks awesome. And what's what's this down the face? Yeah, so that's some war paint. So we're we're uh, Viking warriors. So uh, they used to paint themselves, paint their eyes, um, tattoos as well. So that's what uh, Benji's got on at the moment. How come you guys are in Copenhagen dressed as Vikings? Yeah, so uh, we represent Jorvik Vikingo, which is a uh, group of uh, mercenary warriors that are part of the Viking Raiders. So we've uh, we volunteered to come along and here we are. So, but, but normally a Viking would come from Denmark and go to England. Why are you even dressing up as somebody who I would consider maybe your former enemy? Well, you've got to think of the history, the fact that the Vikings did come over to the UK, so we've got to surely have... I mean, just look at me. Would you say I don't have any Norse in me? No, you look very blonde, very Scandinavian. Thank you very much. <laughs> I try. Black sheep of the family, really. But, uh, yes, it's just it's part of our history, as well as the, you know, the Norse side of it, because there are battles and stories that happened over in the UK that obviously didn't happen over in these lands because they came raiding to us. So that's why we love doing it, and we just meet so many great people through reenactment itself and i can see from your knuckles that that you had a, a few accidents yeah so um often we wear gloves um, when we're fighting so we're, we're used to fighting unrehearsed so we'll stand together and we'll just go for it uh, and we'll try and fight each other um well we will fight each other it's not trying we're doing it um we, we get, just don't kill we, each other we just don't kill each other you know these are all blunted these weapons if they're sharp well, that thing wouldn't exist anymore. You know, it's just one of those things. Um, so when we're rehearsing, we, we get the odd cut and bruise, we get the odd broken bone, it's part of it. You know, you can't fly around with steel and heavy steel and put effort in and not expect to get a few knocks here and there, you know? The Vikings did all the marauding, raping and pillaging they are so well known for. But they didn't just attack foreign places in small raiding groups. 
they formed massive great armies and they settled with women and children. It's not just warriors moving around and that again is what you assume from a title like great army that this is just men and probably mostly young men and some of them were but you can also see from historical remains and from the historical sources that there are women and children with them too. We've got skeletal remains from Repton, which isotope analysis tells us are Scandinavian in origin, but these are female remains as well. And a couple of accounts talk about Viking forces moving between Francia and England and taking their women and children with them. So what we've actually got is almost a, a migratory population of, of thousands of people, maybe 10,000 people moving around for years at a time with the women and children. Some of those children will be born on campaign. They'd be born in France or England as the army moved around. And they would be constantly moving, they'd be growing up in this mobile society and would perhaps never have a permanent home to be familiar with. They would just be used to shipboard life and would never know anything else. So it would be just second nature to be familiar with ships and the means of navigation and of sailing and shipbuilding and so on. It would just be part of life. Not as well known, the Vikings travelled as far south as Byzantium. I asked Dr. Jonathan Shepard from the Khalili Research Centre at the University of Oxford to tell us what Byzantium was at this time. Well, I can do it in a, I think in one word, megalopolis. The Byzantines had everything, gold, mystique, court, court titles, wonderful battles to fight if you're a good warrior, make your name, gain fame and glory, and on top of all that, bags of gold. Byzantium lived in the imagination to some extent. It was that fabulous place with mighty walls uh, and beautiful gold-topped churches. Um, so to some extent it is a sort of fantasy land uh, presided over by an emperor who will reward the most brave and best of the warriors. So it's a sort of, a lot of it is um, pure fiction, but it was fed by a stream of Scandinavians making the journey. The Vikings traveled all the way to Constantinople, Istanbul today. And as you might think, they first tried to raid it. Well, they tried, um, but not very well, or not very successfully. Um, the famous and best described attack is from the year 860, when they appeared off the walls, the sea walls of Constantinople, without warning. And it's described as like a thunderbolt, like a bolt from the blue by the Patriarch, the head of the church in Constantinople, the Byzantine church. He saw the threat outside the walls of the city and interpreted the attack 
as a punishment from God. Religious processions and prayer was the answer, because the Byzantium people had to atone for their sins. And they worked. Um, the Vikings went away and withdrew, and according to um, a chronicle, um, there was a great storm and many Viking ships were wrecked on the way home, um, perishing horribly. It was a, a great shock for the Byzantines, but it also showed the ability of the Vikings. And we're told that 200 ships took part in the attack, and some of them certainly behaved badly because we have an account of a Byzantine holy man living on an island uh, in the Sea of Marmara, not far from Constantinople. The Vikings attacked the monastery of the holy man, uh, who only just survived himself. But they took as many prisoners as they could to be slaves. Uh, and we have a description of how 18 prisoners were taken to the stern, the aft, the back of a Viking ship. And, brace yourself, they were chopped to pieces uh, with axes by the Vikings uh, uh, with great enthusiasm at the back of their boat. And why I mention this um, is just as a very old-fashioned answer to the modern uh, revisionist attempt to uh, show that the Vikings' reputation has been exaggerated. Uh, or that the Vikings were really very nice to know and um, were quite uh, tame and civilized and, uh, you know, not really very violent. But um, I wouldn't underestimate their capacity for sh sheer brutality because this uh, life of a Byzantine saint, of the holy man, um, had no particular reason to exaggerate, and it was written not long afterwards. So it's just a, a warning that the Vikings could behave very badly indeed. But, and this is the real point, if you could tame them, or if you could persuade them to work for you, then clearly they were extraordinary warriors and extremely formidable. They did persuade them, because some Vikings came to Byzantium to work as Varangians, as mercenaries. That's as good as name as any, because mercenary has the heavy implication of fighting for money, working for pay, and only for pay, not for other nobler reasons like patriotism, love of country, and serving society, but just outright pay. And um, I think that pretty well describes the main motivation. Um, occasionally we get it in as many words on the Swedish runestones, which say that, you know, he went bravely for gold. And that's what they became. Um, it was in partly a matter that uh, raiding didn't work very or didn't really get you very rich. and You were never going to capture the city itself on the one hand. And on the other, the Byzantines were themselves very active in talent spotting, in always keeping an eye open for really effective warriors for really uh, good quality military manpower, uh, which they could recruit, maybe only use for five years or short visits, short stays, as it were, but who could supplement their own forces. And this is a tradition going back to the, well, 5th, 6th century AD to the Roman Empire almost, this acute awareness that they were not themselves always very good militarily. I mean, they had their soldiers, but they, they were not living fighting the whole time. So if you could find 
a warrior society where violence was fairly customary and they were very good at it um, and had extra good weapons, such as swords, then why not um, uh, recruit them, send friendly messages, um, gifts and bribes, if you like, and try to persuade some of them uh, and, and get the king or the leader to permit this, if not come himself, and um, serve in the imperial forces. And this is what's going on from the mid 10th century. Well, really, um, off and on and fluctuations up till uh, the fall of Constantinople to the Crusaders in 1204. There are signs of contact between Denmark and even Tisu and the emperor in Byzantium. The earliest hard evidence of Byzantine interest in military manpower of the Danes is sitting, some of it, in a museum near you at the moment. And that is one of the seals of somebody called Theodosius Babutsikos. We know a little bit about Theodosius, that Theodosius paid a visit to Emperor Lothar, the Western Emperor uh, in charge of what's now Germany, uh, urging him to join in a, an expedition in the Mediterranean. And altogether, we have three seals of Theodosius found on what was then the territory of Denmark. Uh, one that was found at Tisa, um, one at Reba in the west, and one at Hedby. The really interesting thing is that they are struck from Two are from the same die, but one is from another one, meaning that he was sending these messages quite intensively. We just have three of these small lead seals, which look pretty ugly. They're not particularly, you know, special or valuable. They're only made of lead. Uh, but by some good luck and good archaeologists in recent years of the Danes, um, now we have three. But then we have these three seals. Um, and I have argued for many years now um, but this is part of a recruiting campaign by the Byzantines uh, in the form of their troubleshooter, Theodosius Babutsikos, sending messages not only to the king, but probably to chieftains, to local warlords uh, in places like Atisa. Um, almost certainly, I think, asking for recruits, young men, to come down and fight with the Muslims, doing what they did best, which was fighting by sea. But the seal is not the only trace left in the Danish fields of the vast network of trade routes used in Viking times. Trine Borage has one in her hand. We have um, a lot of uh, metal finds from this particular spot, uh, suggesting that they had contact with a world very far from here. Um, we have a lot of silver here. Um, and and silver is not natural in the Danish uh, context. It's all silver we find is imported. We cannot produce silver from from natural resources in Denmark. You have some there. Is that, is, yeah. is that what is that? And is, where this is, is a small piece of a silver ingot. It's, it's a round, about a centimeter long now. 
and it weighs a, probably about 10 grams or something like that, which was a, a common uh, way of paying for grain or leather products or a new comb for the wife or whatever. You could go in and you could trade this little piece of silver uh, with, with all kind of commodities that you would need in your household. But is it found right here, this one? This one is found, uh, yes, at this complex a little further to the north from where we are standing now. <gasps> yeah. My feet are getting a little, little yeah. bit cold from <laughs> yeah. this field in Denmark. Do you want to walk inside? Yeah. <laughs> and as we walk inside to our comfy and warm modern life, I would like to thank Trine Borage, Gareth Williams and Jonathan Shepard for helping me tell this story as well as the Vikings Thomas Erna Olsen from Feudeviken Museum and Alex and Benji from Jorvik. This story is a part of the Destination Viking Project, where we follow the Vikings in a collaboration between museums from all over Europe. My name is Saar Sander Laugesen and I and Museum West Zealand. Hope you have enjoyed this journey. And as it says in Havamal, the traveler must train his wits all is easy at home. He who knows little is a laughingstock amongst the men of the world.